Well, good morning once again. If you have your Bible, I would welcome you and invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. We have been working through Romans 8, verse by verse, the whole book of Romans. So that same end, by the way, if you're interested, this is the 40th sermon from the book of Romans, if you're counting like I am. So, okay, we're going to begin reading in verse 16 all the way to verse 25. And Lord willing, we'll end what we began last week. This is the word of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. In his sufferings for the gospel, I consider, verse 18, that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, when you created this world, what a lovely world you made. It is a privilege to live on this planet, and it is a privilege, God, to live with other people on it. And yet, you tell us there is a new and far better world coming in every respect, This is what you have said, and and we heart in long for that world. So these texts can be hard. They were hard for me to understand. And as usual, I, on my own, am not enough. And therefore, I need your help to preach your word to the praise of your glory and to the good of everyone who will be listening. Show us, God, then, please, your glory, and and we've been talking about your love all day. Will you just shower us now with your love? For Jesus' sake, we ask these. Amen. We are all people who need something to look forward to. Unlike the animals, survival is not enough. God has set eternity in our hearts, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. God has given us, as human beings, remarkable, remarkable capacities. So we were not meant just to merely survive. God moved heaven and earth to save sinners. Mere survival, that is not God's intent for his people. Indeed, you take away the assurance of something good and true and lovely and perfect and forever that's just up ahead, promised by our Father in heaven. You take away that, you might as well take away life. (laughs) I agree, right? 
terrible thought, I know. Dante, in his book, Divine Comedy, he suggested that the inscription over the gates of hell would be, abandon all hope, you who enter here. And surely there is nothing more dreadful to the human spirit than to be hopeless and to lack assurance of something better waiting just up ahead. One of the books I read this summer was written by Yuval Noah Harari. He's Oxford-educated scholar from Israel. The book's title was Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. I thought it was a good book. And he makes the point in the latter chapters that optimistic hope about the future, so he's thinking about this world, optimistic hope about the future was one of and is one of the driving forces behind innovation, behind expansion, and the hope of a better world and better living to come. If you like, something better up ahead is coming, we anticipate it, and that prospect keeps people thinking and inventing and planning and investing and building and caring and really living, not just taking, really living. And, and we as Christians, we should know We should know that better than anyone else. We believe that something far better is coming in Christ. And I don't think this is wrong to say. We all feel as Christians that we were meant for something better. I mean, isn't that true? Don't you have that feeling in you? Isn't that part of our new nature? Outside of Christ, we don't deserve a lick. In Christ, there is something better. I was made for something better. Again, I don't deserve it, but in Christ, I can have it. Christ, okay, Christ has blotted out my rebellion. He's washed away my sin. He, he my salvation, my, my faith, my righteousness, everything rests in him. Our adoption into God's forever family, that's because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our joy is a sure, sure thing because of Jesus Christ. And because of all that, We should know as Christians, either instinctively or intellectually, by the Spirit, verse 23, that something better is coming, and we set our life's compass towards that direction. Verse 23, do you see it there if your Bible's open? We Christians who have the Spirit groan inwardly. So this is not moaning outwardly. This is groaning inwardly, waiting for the final pieces of redemption to meet us. Okay, why? Why? Well, what we have now is nothing compared to, and it's not enough, not as adopted children of God. I mean, we are, verse 17, we are heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. What is now is nothing compared to that which is coming, and the Spirit testifies that to us, and we should feel it. Indeed, the Bible says we groan inwardly because what is coming has not yet come. So, So think, yes, we were meant for something better, And our inner person knows this. The Spirit of God affirms it. And the tension then between the now and the not yet, that is real. Okay? In fact, it better be if you're a Christian. Now stay with me. When a person says, we will know them by their fruit, more often than not, the context is morality. And I I agree, a thousand times yes, we should know people by their fruit. But what we have here 
is some of that fruit. Groaning inwardly, waiting for the final pieces of redemption to meet us, knowing we were meant for something far better than this, that is Christian. That marks us as Christians. You want to say, Christian, know yourself. Really know yourself. Ask yourself, are you longing? Are you groaning for your glorification? So think of it like this. I'm glad to be alive. I'm glad to be alive in the place where God has put me, thrilled to be here, happy to do his bidding. It's why I exist. But I, by the Spirit, inwardly I groan, I want to go home. And this is not my home. Again, it's a privilege to be here on this planet. Much to do. Good, clean work to do here. But, but, it is not enough. Which is why Paul is ending this first movement of his letter with this orchestra of assurances from the gospel. I mean, that is all of chapter 8. And when it comes to assurance, the gospel of Jesus Christ is incomparable. It is peerless. It is utterly supreme. It is undefeatable. You take the gospel and any condemnation gospel beats it. You take the gospel any failure, gospel beats it. You take the gospel and anything that would try to just say not enough, not good enough, anything, the gospel pounds it, beats it in Christ. You will not find anything like the gospel anywhere. And, and here in chapter 8, Paul points his readers to that final fulfillment of the gospel, our redemption, our complete redemption, the finality of our adoption, the glorification and the new heaven and the new earth, which is a guaranteed assurance from God. Four points this morning. Number one, God has a plan for his planet. Now, if you look at your Bible now, you'll see, first off, that verses 19 to 25, Paul is using language which, in effect, personifies creation. It's kind of like a Disney movie. He's given personality to creation. Verse 19, do you see it there? Creation waits in eager expectation. Verse 20, creation is frustrated. Those are human characteristics. And by the way, Paul does the same kind of thing in the previous chapter with sin. He kind of personifies sin. So even here, the impersonal forces of nature, which in Hebrew poetry, they're humanized. They are brought into the party of the anticipation and the celebrating of God's redemption. And the Jewish people would be very familiar with personifying nature as a way to speak. Okay, so this doesn't mean that the planet is an actual person. So if you're a fan of Marvel movies, you will know that Ego was a person who became a planet. And so the person's a planet. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, anyway, it doesn't matter. That's not what's happening here. He's using these terms to explain something. For example, God does this in the Old Testament. Isaiah 35, 1, the wilderness and the desert will be glad. Isaiah 55, the mountains and the hills will burst into song. The trees of the field will clap their hands. So God has a plan for his planet, something glorious for his creation, which extends even beyond our own glorification. Secondly, then, when you think about it, creation here has to do with the non-rational, the, the inanimate, made-from-nothing world which God spoke into existence. So think here of animals and birds and insects and sea life and plants and trees and mountains and, and dirt and rivers and prairies and, and sky. God has promised 
a new heaven and a new earth, which the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish. So this is our Father's world. All of this is his property. All of us, we are not owners. Ultimately, we're stewards. He has made it, and he will, in the right time, destroy it, 2 Peter 3.10, and he's going to make it new. He has seen fit to appoint this creation to glory. So God said, you see that, verse 21? Creation is liberated from its bondage to decay. So right now, the natural world is, is caught up in a continuous pattern of death and decomposition. Okay, so the world puts up a lovely fight, right? Flowers grow back, new trees spring up, animals born, all that kind of stuff. But everything about creation has the clock on it. Everything is running down. Everything is losing more energy that, that it cannot be regenerated. That's, if you're a scientist or if you read a lot, the second law of thermodynamics, right? The world is headed to empty. The, the eventual unavailability of energy for regeneration, that will come to an end. That's not just Christian scientists. Every scientist worth their salt knows this. So think of it like this. If creation was a car with a full tank of gas, the gas is going to eventually run out and there's no gas stations to fill her up. That's, that's the now of creation. God's plan for the planet, however, is to make everything new so that nothing will run low. Just think about that. Nothing will get old. Nothing will die off. Everything will be perpetually enhanced for all eternity. Doesn't that blow the mind? Everything's going to get better. A new heaven and a new earth where eternity and righteousness will at last be at home. And that's going to be wonderful. That's God's glorious agenda. And you see, the glory of this Christian and, and, and the glory of the new creation is that the new creation that is not just some vapor. You know, if you're thinking of us moving around in a cloud in a kind of uh, ethereal existence, dressed in a celestial bedsheet, playing a harp... You know this. That's, that's way off. The new heaven and the new earth is solid. Indeed, it will be more real and more substantial and more beautiful than the world that we have right now. Number one, God has a plan for his planet. Number two, God has a plan for his people. So, so last time, remember, we ended in verse 18. You remember there? I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So genuine Christians suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is the kind of suffering Paul is talking about. Read the gospel. Jesus died for sin. Jesus is God's son, his only son. He is our righteousness. He was buried. He was raised. He's ascended, returning to judge the world. Repent and believe on Christ. That is what the disciples proclaimed. That is what got them in so much trouble. They didn't suffer because they told people, try harder, do better, be nicer, be better with your finance, and be better with your family. And all those things are important. We understand that. But that's not what they said. Now, remember we said that that word, verse 18, consider, that would have been a word used in the banking community in the ancient world. So this is, this is kind of like a, a banking term. So Paul, and we said this last time, but it's worth repeating. You sit down, and Paul has his ledger, 
And on one column, suffering. On the other column, future glory. He runs the numbers, not even close. Future glory is spectacularly crushing the accounting on present sufferings. Paul doesn't have a suffering fetish here. Runs the numbers, future glory. This, this stuff right now, it's not that big a deal. It hurts. It's real. But it just doesn't compare to what's coming. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Jesus, new heaven, new earth. All of that is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ by, by which the future world was broken into when Christ was risen. You see, the, the resurrection, which is, this is kind of off the path, just for a sec. The resurrection says the future world is real. It is assured. Uh, this week, or excuse me, last week, my sister sent us a bunch of pictures on our family feed of comic books that my mom and dad used to buy us when we were kids. They were Christian comic books. <laughs> and one of the comic books had the title, maybe you know this, There's a New World Coming. And I remember reading. I remember the, the people in the book, and, we read, and it was just like, oh, there's a new world coming. That is so much of the Christian hope. C.S. Lewis, the, the, the final book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle, I think that he gets so close to explaining this, this future hope. It's often read at funerals. And to me, it just strikes the heart in a way that's completely different. And just listen to what he says. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them down. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. The term is over. He's talking about the old life. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning, the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of that great story, which no one on earth has read. And it goes on forever. In every chapter, every chapter is better than the one before. <laughs> Loved ones, God has something wonderful in store for his planet, and he has something wonderful in store for his people, those people who have trusted exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ, for those people who know that Jesus is the door, and it's something wonderful, will say it's so wonderful that it'll just take your breath away. I mean, just ask yourself the question, when's the last time you had your breath taken away from you? Has it ever happened? So think of the best experience you've ever had. Th think of the best relationship you have ever enjoyed. Forgive me, uh, my wife and I were laughing all the way to church. She was telling me a funny story, and we were just laughing. I'm like, I am never going to lose that moment in my head ever. <laughs> Your most euphoric feeling ever. It's okay. God, God gave us capacity to feel. What is the most euphoric feeling you've ever had? The best day, the best moment. Loved ones, multiply their intensity by infinity and multiply its duration by eternity. Do the math. And we still have not reached the hem of the garment in our thoughts of what God has in store for us and for this world. 
And yet, you think about all that, and you know what the greatest thing about heaven is to me? So the, the, the gentleman that I've been serving for like 20-something years in pastoral ministry, I'm going to see him face to face. That means something to me. The guy I've been touting about for 20-something years, face to face. And if you're in Christ, you'll get to do that too. So ask yourself, what are your daydreams? What are, what are your daydreams in the course of a day? The Puritans would say, and I've told you this before, you tell me your daydreams and I will tell you all about you. I will tell you what moves you. I will tell you what inspires you. I will tell you what keeps you, <laughs> keeps your hands to the plow. I'll tell you all of that. The promise of our future Loved ones, the promise of our future is so much the core of our faith. This is the guts of our faith. These are the marks of our faith, a real genuine faith. You want hope? You think these things through. It is so much Christian to be heavenly minded in order to set the compass of our life, the fundamental direction of our life towards this end, towards the new heaven and the new earth and our new glorified Completely redeemed bodies. What is Peter Pan's second start of the right? Straight on till morning. That's where we're headed. C.S. Lewis, I think I've read this before. If you read history, you will find it's true that the Christians who do most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next world. So, so life here is cool in many ways. I'm, I'm happy to be alive, but it's more like staying at a hotel. Hotels can be fun, but they're not home. And when we suffer for the sake of the gospel, when that comes, we can say so quickly, not worth comparing. Not worth, verse 18, comparing. Not when the glory that's just coming will be revealed to us. So can I be honest with you? Can I just like be brutally honest with you? I have been preaching this stuff to myself a lot lately, and I promise you it does help. I haven't perfected it yet, but I can tell you experientially for me, this is good. This is good. This helps. Number one, God has a plan for his planet. Number two, God has a plan for his people. Both should be cared for. They both belong to God. Neither should be trashed. Finally, not finally, we have four points. Number three, sorry. Creation has some issues. Now look at verse 19. Because we gave it the issues. For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, remember we said a minute ago that Paul here is personifying nature. He's using a very familiar Hebrew poetic device to do this. So there's nothing unnatural, unusual, or unscriptural about what he's doing. Psalm 98, Psalm 96, the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all the contents of the fields, the forests, the rivers, all are called to rejoice and sing to God, the personifying of nature. Now, When you look at these verses, first off, Paul writes, creation waits in eager expectation. So eager expectation is actually one word in the Greek, 
And it's a very, very vivid word. It's a word picture here. Think of creation standing on its tiptoes, sticking its neck out, wanting to see something from a far off distance. So nature is on its tiptoes. It's just waiting and expectantly with great expectation. And by the way, when Paul writes creation waits, wait means wait here means he's creation is waiting excitingly but patiently. It has the idea of anticipation, readiness, something wonderful is coming. And it's just around the bend. Neck out, toes up, eyes looking as far as it can see. Okay, so what is it looking for? Verse 19 again, please. For the children of God to be revealed. Apocalypsis is the word. The root word is where we get the word revelation. This is the appearance. In other words, Paul says their created order is waiting for the unveiling of the children of God. Glorified. So it's common practice in Latin America where when a young lady turns 15, 16 years of age, they have a quinceanera. And what that is, it's just like this massive party to kind of just like tell the world, um, she's here, she's arrived. It's kind of like a rite of passage that families celebrate. Uh, think of here, I don't know if people still do this, but a sweet 16 party. My, my sister Lisa had a sweet 16, sweet 16 party. In essence, the family is showing the world, this is our daughter. She is wonderful. She's arrived. She is glorious. And in some sense, that's exactly what what is taking place here. Creation is waiting for, if you would, the quinceanera of us, our ultimate glorification and perfection. And if you ask yourself, yourself the question, okay, why is creation behaving this way? Verse 20, you see it there? For this creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Okay? So in Adam, at the fall, creation was subject to the judgment of God because of Adam's sin. Not because of creation, but because of Adam's sin. Sin's curse did not only affect humanity, it affected all of creation. Remember Genesis 3.17? Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles. We have to work to eat now. Sweat and painful toil until death comes to us. And the word there, frustration, that's an ugly word. It's verse 20. Creation was subject to frustration. This means emptiness, futility, purposelessness. So so think of it like this. It's almost like creation has this existential moment. Like Woody Allen kind of thing. It's like, what's the use? Why am I here? You know, what, what's, what's going to happen to me? Life is an exercise of futility. Because creation, now stay with me, creation was meant for something far better than what we experience now. So some of you might remember this. This is the myth of, of Sisyphus from Greek mythology. So that was a mythical figure. In his whole life, he had to take the rock and he had to roll it up to the top of the hill. And as soon as he got to the top of the hill, the rock rolled back down. And he would have to walk around to the hill and to do the rock all the way up again. And forever and ever and ever and ever, this exercise of futility. The point, all of this now was not the way it was supposed to be. Creation is, if you would, sensing this is all not right. 
This is not what it was for, right? So we can run from animals, but they can run from us. We can walk in the rain, you know? What's this on walking in the rain, holding hand in hand with the one I love? Something like that. We can walk in the rain, but we can run from lightning. At least I do. So creation, as good as it is now, as, as breathtaking as it is now, the animals as well, it was meant for something better. And creation has this earnest expectation for the day when all things will change. Right? So, so now, man as man, we can turn the earth into a garden, but we can turn it into a dust bowl too. That's how it is. We can, we can contain fires. We can start fires. That's how it is. However, when we are glorified, when our final redemption has come, creation will have nothing to frustrate it. We will all be made new, and creation will be made new. Instead of frustration, you see that word? fulfillment. Okay, now, now think through this. When we consider the majesty and the greatness of the world as we have it now, the beauty of creation, the beauty of animals, and so on, doesn't it stagger the mind that the new world that is coming is going to be far, far better than the world that we have now? I mean, think of a better fish. Think of a better lion. Think of a better sky, a better star, a better tree, a better mountain. Creation will no longer be frustrated, but it will be free. It will be free to finally be what God intended it to be, ever increasing. And that's the thing that gets me. It's just going to keep getting better and better and better. And instead of verse 21, decay, there's going to be strength and newness. Everything will once again flourish under God's loving rule. Say that again. Everything will once again flourish under God's loving rule. Now, we, we know every moment things get older Things fade, things get weaker, things go limp, more incoherent. But in the new world, things get newer, more beautiful, stronger, more coherent, every moment, ever increasing for all eternity. And instead of pain, verse 22, there's going to be joy. So Paul describes it like this. Even the pain of the present time, which is kind of like the birth of a child, verse 22. That's the metaphor of choice. A mother at the peak of her pain. She's groaning and she gives birth. Paul says that's the metaphor for creation. So on April 25th, 1996, St. David's Hospital, Austin, Texas, room number 10 in the maternity ward, mama was groaning. <laughs> But when she was done, out came our son. <laughs> hey, would you, would you like to get rid of the groaning so that you wouldn't have a son? Are you kidding me? Don't you want to shout? <laughs> this is incredible. We, we are living in God's material world. Creation now is spectacular. It's still dangerous, but it is spectacular. We can enjoy it. Or we can run from it, right? Thursday night, Friday night, bedroom window, there was an owl that was going, woo, woo, 
outside our door. The first thing I thought is, I'm going to have to leave this house. I wonder what would happen if the owl just kind of went, grabbed my head and started, and I had to go through that at 3.30 in the morning. I wish it would have been, oh, there's an owl. It's going to be wonderful. Hello, Mr. Owl. There's going to be a day when I'll be able to do that. Hey, Mr. Owl. Good to see you. I'm not afraid of you anymore. The goal of the gospel, the goal of the finished work of Christ is to rescue the entire creation. The land will stop groaning. The animals will no longer be afraid, nor of us, of them. All violence will be done away with. As you know, the lion and the lamb will together be as one. No more fear. Now you have all that because this is our final point. God has a plan for his planet. God has a plan for his people. Creation has some issues. We gave it the issues, but it's going to get over it. And we have hope. Look down at your Bible because it's a great hope. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly. See, very Christian, grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, so this idea, Paul, is like the completion of our adoption. We're adopted in one sense, but the final redemption, our final glorification, that's coming. So there's coming a day when we will no, ha- no longer have the desire to sin. No more frustration, no more decay. Redemption, glorification, complete. On that day, it'll be like, yes, we're here. Jesus Christ's word is true. We've been delivered from sin's presence finally. Now, I want you to follow Paul's line of thought. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. But that hope which is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now, this is his logic. Why would you hope for something you already have? If we have it all, why hope? However, now here's the key. We do not have it all. Of course not. And because we do not have it all, we wait. We wait. We wait patiently. You see, loved ones, there's all the difference in the world between a groaning Christian and a moaning Christian. Groaning inwardly, that's allowed. It should happen if we are Christians. Indeed, the Spirit of God will work this in us. Groaning Christians, yes, but not moaning. And this is what I mean. The idea is here to be frustrated and complain. You see, if you think that you have to have it all now as a Christian, then you'll know something's missing. And you'll you'll moan. You'll complain. I want it all now. Why don't I have it all now? I mean, it's a wonder what commercialization of Christianity, whenever that takes place, that's like an open market because we're always going to have something that, that frustrates us, if you would, something that, that, that's not here yet. So, dear saints, now you know, of course there's something missing. It will be missing until our redemption. Get used to it. We will never have it all now. Therefore, verse 23, do you see it there? We groan inwardly. The first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. 
And that is what Christians do. That is spiritual. Groaning inwardly, yes. Moaning outwardly, no. If you think everything has to be now, when it can't be, when it won't be, you will be miserable at worst or kind of have like a circumstantial moodiness at best. Now, we all know that we all get moody. We all moan from time to time. We understand this, but we don't, we don't have to. And, and I think we lose so much zeal and so much emotional stability if all we think about is now and having to have everything now. I wrote in my notes, know thyself. Know thyself. Are you a frustrated person? More moans than groans? Know thyself. There is this assurance. There is this promise. When God will say, you come, my children, inherit the kingdom that I have prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That day is coming. That day is assured. That is our hope. That's why we groan. We were saved to that hope. And it's a sure hope. Now we need to end. There's a bit more to say on this because we need to think through this more. But just let me end with, with a little short part of Pilgrim's Progress. And it, it's been a long time since we quoted from Pilgrim's Progress. But if you don't know the story, there's a gentleman named Christian. And he's on his way to the celestial city, heaven. And the book's about all his adventures. And it's kind of like a dream. So just listen carefully. I saw, more, moreover, in my dream that the interpreter took him by the hand, that's Christian, and, and had him go into a little room where sat two little children, each one in his chair. The name of the oldest was Passion. The name of the other was Patience. Passion seemed to be much discontent, but Patience was very quiet. Then Christian asked, what is the reason of the discontent of Passion? The interpreter answered, the ruler of them would have him stay and wait for the best things till the beginning of the next year. Patience wants it all now. Excuse me. Passion wants it all now. But patience is willing to wait. And so there's this little scene where the governor puts gifts before, and they're not supposed to open them, but, but passion just rips into the gifts, tears the whole thing up. Patience just sits there and wait and won't open till he's told. The story goes on. Christian asked the interpreter, expound this scene to me more fully. The interpreter said, these two lads are figures. Passion are the men of this world. And patience, the men of the new world to come. For as you see here, passion will have, all, have it all now, this year. That is to say, in this world. So are the men of this world. They must have all things good now. They must. They cannot stay till next year. That is until the next world for their portion of good. That proverb, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, is of more authority with them than all the divine testimonies of the good book of the good world to come. But as you see, he, he has quickly lavished it all away and presently left nothing but rags. So will it be with all such men at the end of this world. You can't have it all now. 
You can't. Don't be frustrated by that. Allow for that truth, grown inwardly, spiritual, by the Spirit, for what is coming. It changes the heart. It changes the mind. It takes us one more step into the image of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. So the next, the next life, it is going to overwhelm us. It is going to overwhelm us. And if you want to be part of the next life, how does that begin? With confession of sin, repentance of Jesus Christ, and taking your life and putting it in his hand. And let him be your righteousness and let him be your savior. Can I give you a homework assignment? Think about the next life. Think about what we talked about here through the course of this week. Let's see what it does. We're going to end with God's word, Revelation chapter 21. This is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. Let's pray together as we dismiss. And thank you for your attention this morning. And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and with all peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.